morning we're going to look at Psalm 2 on this Ascension Sunday. Psalm 2 is, I believe, the most quoted and alluded to Old Testament passage except for Psalm 110. So Psalm 2 is a very significant passage in the life of the church. Psalm 2. And while you're turning there also, if you like, you can take out your insert if you want to take some notes and we'll explain what that means in a minute. Psalm 2 is a psalm of David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I want to pray that You will send Your Holy Spirit this morning to open our eyes so that we can see as Isaiah did, the Lord high and exalted, seated upon His throne, the train of His temple, filling the temple. And Father, we ask that we will see Jesus ruling and reigning over the nations. And I ask that this will impact our view of the Gospel. May this impact how we live our daily lives. And we ask these things confidently in His name. Amen. You may be seated. What is the Bible trying to communicate? What is the message of the Bible? Obviously, there are many different answers that we could give to those questions, but sometimes it's interesting when you hear those outside the Christian faith answer those questions. For example, a well-educated Hindu scholar once complained that Christians misrepresented the Bible. He said, I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It is not a book of religion. And anyway, we have plenty of books of religion in India. We don't need any more. I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history, the history of the whole of creation, and the history of the human race, and therefore a unique interpretation of the human history, or excuse me, as the human person, as a responsible actor in history. That is unique. There is nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside of it. Put simply, his complaint 
is that the Bible tells the unfolding story of the world from beginning to end. And it's not simply a book that gives us some religious instructions or theological truths or moral lessons or, theolo- or excuse me, ethical guidance. It does give us those things. It does give us systematic theology in which to understand God and sin and mankind. Um, It does give us moral and ethical guidance for how we should live our lives. But more than that, this Hindu scholar is saying it gives us an interpretation of history. It helps us to see how we got here, why we're here, and where we're going. And of course, for a Hindu, that would be very unique because in the Hindu religion, the world is just going around and around and around in endless cycles. It's like a merry-go-round that never stops. It just continues on and on and on and you're reincarnated and you come back as another person or a thing or an animal and depending on how you live your life, you come a little higher or a little lower, but it just goes on and on and on and it's, it's endless. But the Bible makes it very clear that we're not involved in endless cycles. The Bible has a specific beginning with God creating the world and then history is moving in a very specific direction. And it's that very specific direction that I want us to focus on this morning. In your outline, you'll see that we have the seven seas of world history. The seven seas of world history. I got this from the Creation Museum when we visited there. Um, They had this. Maybe some of you have heard this. And this is what they have. Creation which gives us the very beginning, of course, when God created the heavens and the earth. Corruption relates to the fall of mankind into sin. Catastrophe relates to the flood, the worldwide flood. Confusion relates to the Tower of Babel where God introduced different languages, dividing up um, the different nations. And then we have Christ coming to the world. And then, of course, we have His cross And then the seventh one that they give is consummation, which is the end of world history. So they provide us with the seven seas of world history. Now I want to ask this question. As we move from cross to consummation, should we be optimistic or should we be pessimistic? Is the future looking bright or is it looking bleak? Well, that all depends on how we fill in the blanks between cross and consummation. Now, this is my recommendation to the Creation Museum, that they change the seven seas of world history to the nine seas of world history. Now, I understand they're a scientific organization, so of course they're going to emphasize uh, creation, they're going to talk about the flood, they're going to talk about... Um, confusion because of the different languages. That's what they do. They're scientists, so they're going to study the past. I understand that. Um, but I think it's really important between the cross of Jesus Christ and the consummation of the end of the ages to say what's, what's happening between there. Um, obviously, Christ came. He died on the cross, paying the price for our sins, raised on the third day. But then what? Then what? Well, I want to suggest that we should fill in those blanks with coronation, 
which has to do with the ascension of Jesus Christ, 40 days after his resurrection. And then, just to keep things consistent, we could put another C in there, and that C would be conquest. And that relates to the descension of the Holy Spirit, if I can call it that. Jesus ascended into heaven, and then on the day of Pentecost, which we'll celebrate next week, the Holy Spirit descended, giving His church and His people power so that they could fulfill the mission that God has for them. It's been said that God gave us the Holy Spirit because Jesus has given us a mission. And that mission, of course, is the Great Commission to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations. So between the cross and the consummation, we have the coronation of Jesus Christ where He sits down at the right hand, God the Father, and then we have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit which empowers the church to fulfill its mission. So to help us to understand uh, what theologians call the meta-narrative, or very simple, simply just the, the grand story, I want us to look at Psalm 2. And we're looking at the grand story. We're looking at all of history. I'm not talking about the immediate future, uh, which includes maybe the next 10 years, 20 years, 200 years. I'm talking about world history, however long that may be. And God only knows how long that will be. Now, as we look at Psalm 2, it divides up nicely into four sections or scenes. And in each of those four sections or scenes, we have four different voices speaking. First, we have the voice of the world, and then we'll see the voice of the Father, the voice of the Son, and then the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking through the church. So, let's begin with the first scene and picture it, if you will, um, like watching a drama or a play and the curtain opens and on the stage you see all the nations of the world gathering together. And it's a massive mob. And they are raging, they are angry, and they are loud. Look at verse 1. Why do the nations rage? And perhaps implied in that word, the nations, is that the whole world is upset. The footnote in my Bible says that rage could be translated noisily assemble. So the nations are noisily assembling. They are in a rage. And we're told that the people's plot in vain. The nations are raging. The peoples are plotting. But it's all in vain. In Job 42, verse 2, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And that's why this plotting is in vain. Because God's purposes cannot be undone. And we'll come back to that vanity in a little while. Verse 2 continues on and says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. So we have the nations, we have the peoples, we have the kings, we have the rulers all conspiring together in this angry rage against whom? Yahweh and His Christ 
or His anointed. They're conspiring. The whole world is coming against God Almighty and His anointed. And what is the result of this conspiracy? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Turn to Acts 4, if you will. In Acts 4, we have the early church's interpretation of this psalm. Peter and John have been before the the council. They've been persecuted for uh, speaking out. They've been told to be silent. They said, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then they go back and they report this, report this to the church. And then we read in Acts 4.24, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and here's Psalm 2, Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then they give the interpretation. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Three quick observations. First of all, um, this is a Psalm of David. And let me say that this psalm is pure prophecy. Uh, David is functioning as a prophet here. In Acts 2, they talked about David writing Psalm 16 and how the Lord would not let His Holy One see corruption. And the church said David was speaking as a prophet. And he was talking about one of his descendants who would come, who would die, but his body would not decay because God would raise him up. Here he's prophesying also, and he's prophesying about the coming anointed one, the coming king, and he prophesies specifically about how everyone will conspire against him and have him crucified. But notice very carefully that Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the Israelites only did what God had predestined to take place all along. They fulfilled God's purposes, which is why all their plotting and conspiring was in vain, because unwittingly they were just carrying out God's purposes of providing salvation for the whole world. Now, why were these people so angry? Why are they so hostile towards God and His Son? And they tell us in their own words, verse 3, And here's where we hear the voice of the world. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Simply put, they are ticked off at God because God is telling them how they should live their lives and they don't want to follow God's decrees. To the world, God's decrees are like shackles that have them in bondage. And they want to be free from God's laws and God's decrees so that they can live however they want. Because in their mind, that's freedom. Living however they want. So many have said over the years that the Ten Commandments, for example, are outdated. Uh, Ted Turner, some of you might be familiar with him, 
um, said that the Ten Commandments are outdated and he sought to exchange the Ten Commandments for his own Ten Initiatives. So, in other words, he thought he could do a little better than God um, in ruling the world. So, this is what he suggests. Number one, I promise to have love and respect for the planet Earth and living things thereon, especially my fellow species, humankind. Unless those fellow species happen to be Christians. Uh, He wasn't so kind towards Christians. Number two, I promise to treat all persons everywhere with dignity, respect, and friendliness. Number three, I promise to have no more than two children or no more than my nation suggests. By the way, he had five children, but... Number four, I promise to use my best efforts to save what is left of our natural world in its untouched state and to restore damaged or destroyed areas where practical. Number five, I pledge to use as little non-renewable resources as possible. Number six, I pledge to use as little toxic chemicals, pesticides, and other poisons as possible and to work for their reduction by others. Um, I'll let you look up the other ones for yourselves. But you know what? Here's the bottom line. Ted Turner wants to do away with the Ten Commandments because they're outdated, especially commandment number seven, the commandments against adultery. Now we're getting to the core of the problem. We want to do do away with God's commands so that we can put together our own list of commands that we want to live according to So that we can live however we want. That's the bottom line, friends. People don't like to be told by God how to live. And that's why the world is upset. Well, if this was a drama, uh, the curtain would close. And then the curtain would open again. And there would be a scene change. And we would see front and center a large throne. With God Almighty seated upon this throne in heaven, surrounded by the angels, and God is responding to what is taking place down on earth. And He's looking way down to see what's taking place down there. And He sees this rebellion. And we're told in verse 4 that He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds the people in derision. Contempt. God laughs because this worldwide rebellion is a joke. Notice that God isn't disturbed whatsoever. He's seated upon the throne. He's still seated seated there and He just kind of shakes His head and He laughs. You puny pygmies. But He holds them in derision. This is not a joyful Laugh. He is not happy at all. Then, He will speak to them in His fury and terrify them in His wrath, saying, and now we have the voice of God the Father speaking. As for me, I have set my King 
on Zion, my holy hill. You didn't want my anointed one to rule over you, so you had him crucified. But guess what? My king, my anointed one, is going to sit right here at my right hand, ruling and reigning over the nations. Now, this throne in Zion refers to the heavenly Jerusalem. Not the Jerusalem in Israel in the Middle East. A number of passages make this clear, but let me give you one. Hebrews 12. Just so that you understand that Zion doesn't always refer to the earthly Zion. Hebrews 12.22 But you have come, present tense, talking about the people of God, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So as Christians, you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, where the angels are gathered together. The spirits of righteous men made perfect are there. Jesus is there. The Father is there. And of course, other passages talk about the fact that right after His resurrection, He went up to heaven. And what did He do when He went up to heaven? He sat on His throne. Acts 2. Acts 2, this is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he is explaining the Gospel, which is the good news about Jesus. He talks about His his life, His miracles, and then He talks about His death, and then He talks about His resurrection. And He doesn't stop there. The pinnacle of His Gospel presentation is not the resurrection, it's the ascension. Acts 2.33 Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord. In other words, God the Father said to God the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus was exalted to heaven. The Father told him to sit down at his right hand until all his enemies should be made his footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ or Lord and King, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Jesus was exalted to heaven and He sits down at the right hand of the Father. And many passages talk about this. Later, if you want to read the end of Ephesians 1, talks about how He uh, rules over the nations. If you want to look at Philippians 2, verses 9-11, through 11, the exaltation of Christ is also given there. There are many passages that talk about at His ascension. He took his seat upon the throne, which is why we could refer to the ascension as the coronation of King Jesus. That's when he began to rule and reign over the nations. So the father laughs at this rebellion against his son, and he seats his son upon the throne so that he can reign. Curtain closes once again, if you will. Change. The curtain opens up again. And when the curtain opens this time, uh, we see Jesus 
with nail-pierced hands walking forth from the tomb. The sun has just begun to shine early this first Easter morning. A fog is still hovering over the ground. And Jesus steps forth and He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are My Son. Today I have begotten you. Now, a couple different interpretations here. When Jesus says, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What day is he referring to? I'll give you the two possibilities. The one day has to do with the eternal sonship of Jesus. Obviously, for all eternity and eternity past, the son was always the son of the father. Okay, so people refer to this, this is the technical theological term, the eternal sonship of Jesus. But that's not the correct answer because Paul tells us specifically what it applies to in Acts 13.33. Acts 13, tell you what, we'll begin at verse 32. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll begin at verse 30. This is Paul preaching Acts 13, verse 30. And he also is talking about Jesus. And after talking about the death of Christ, and after they laid Him in a tomb, verse 30, but God raised Him from the dead. And for many days He appeared to those who had come up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now His witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And now to show that this was prophesied, He's going to quote Scripture. As it is also written in the second Psalm, You are My Son, today I have begotten. Now that seems odd, but Paul makes it very clear that he's talking about the resurrection so we should understand the day specifically as Easter morning and He was specifically begotten, if you will, from the tomb. Or begotten from the dead. So it's like the tomb was the womb and Jesus comes forth to new life. And He is now, as Romans 1.4 says, declared to be the Son of God with power because of His resurrection. And then Paul continues on. And as for the fact that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, He says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. So all these verses that He's quoting from the Old Testament refer to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So verse 7 is specifically Jesus telling why He has the right to rule. Because God has raised Him from the dead. Now look at verse 8. He's not done speaking here. You are My Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of Me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus has the right to rule by virtue of of His 
resurrection and He has the right to rule over all the nations to the ends of the earth. And the Father simply says to the Son, just ask of Me. Son, just ask of Me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. All the ends of the earth will belong to you. And Jesus said, no thank you. Jesus said, thank you. That's why He came. To redeem not only mankind, but to redeem all of creation. And then we see Jesus saying of what the Father said to Him, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus reigns and He rules over the nations. And you don't want to cross King Jesus. This imagery is very significant of uh, dashing to pieces vessels. Uh, in the ancient world, before armies would go to war, they would take pots and they would throw them down on the ground, uh, being symbolic of what they were going to do to their enemies, of how they were going to utterly destroy them and defeat them. And the Father says to the Son that He's going to rule over the nations with a rod of iron, and that He will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel, meaning that He will be victorious over the nations. And as we saw in Acts 2, which quoted Psalm 110.1, the Father is going to make the enemies of the Son His footstool. Many will bow willingly and confess that He is Lord. Others will bow reluctantly, but make no mistake, Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's just a matter of when they bow and how willingly they bow. Now, I think I should also point out um, that verse 9 is also seen in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2.27 Revelation 2 and 3 we have seven letters written to seven churches in Asia Minor. And in Revelation 7 I'll tell you what, I'll begin in 26. Revelation, excuse me, 2. Revelation 2.26 These are Jesus' words to the church in Thyatira. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So you see, Jesus received authority from the Father to rule over the nations, to dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And now Jesus says, you're going to rule and reign with me over the nations. I give you that authority. And we need to see that it's the church in Jesus Christ that rules over the nations. We have a message. Take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus is ruling and reigning through the church. That's how the conquest takes place, which is the discipleship of the nations. It takes place through the church. Jesus is gentle and meek 
and mild. And He also has authority to rule and to reign over the nations. And as we saw in Psalm 72 in our call to worship, may all the kings fall down before Him. All nations serve Him. Jesus really does rule and reign by virtue of His resurrection and the inheritance of the nations belongs to Him. curtain closes once again. And then it opens up. And we see the church. And I think we hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking through the church. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It's fascinating that the specific application of the reign of Christ is given to kings and rulers. They are reminded that there is a King of kings and a Lord of lords who is over them. So they specifically are addressed. And if the kings and the rulers of this world have to submit to Jesus, it only stands to reason that everybody else below them also has to submit to the reign of King Jesus. And it's also a reminder that kings, rulers, authorities, presidents, dictators, senators, representatives, mayors, governors have to submit to the reign of King Jesus. And people say, well, what about secular governments? If Jesus is ruling and reigning over the nations, do governments have the right to be secular? Do they have the right to step outside the umbrella of God's reign and God's laws? They don't. Jesus rules and reigns over everybody and Psalm 2 specifically addresses the kings and it addresses the rulers and they are told to serve the Lord with fear and to rejoice with trembling. And then verse 12 specifically, kiss the Son. And now we know very specifically who this is a reference to. The Son here is God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ. What is the kiss referred to here? Is this a kiss of affection? Uh, like a husband would kiss his wife and say, Happy Mother's Day. Uh, it may include that, but more specifically, it probably has to do with worship. Turn to 1 Kings 19.18, if you will. 1 Kings 19.18 this is the Lord speaking to Elijah when he's all depressed and he thinks that he's the only one serving the Lord. Had a little pity party. I'm the only one, Lord. First Kings 19.18 The Lord says, Yet I will leave 7,000 to Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, a false god, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So there are some lips that have not kissed Baal and some knees who have not bowed before this false god. So the kissing in this context has to do with devotion and allegiance to the god. So when it says, kiss the son, I think that's a sign of show your devotion and your allegiance 
to my son who is now the king. Lest he be angry because you refuse to submit yourself to him and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. We need to be careful how we present God and how we present Jesus. I think often we misrepresent God when we offer the Gospel. And we say things like, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God is a loving God, but we need to put that in the proper context. I, I think we should say this. Man, make it real simple, even the kids can understand it. Man is very, very bad. And because of that, God is very, very mad. Because mankind has rebelled against God. But because God is a God of love, and because He loved the whole world, John 3.16 says, He sent His one and only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But let's be careful that we represent God very clearly. Yes, God is a God of love and God is also a God of anger. He loves righteousness. He loves holiness. He hates wickedness. He hates rebellion. He hates sin. Which is why He punishes it. So we need to put it in its proper context. Which means that when people come to Jesus, they should come with fear and trembling. Because Jesus is not just a meek and mild Savior. He is a ferocious Savior. A good Savior. But a ferocious Savior. C.S. Lewis brought this out very well in his book, The Chronicles of Narnia. If you're familiar with these books that have been made into movies recently, um, Jesus is presented as a lion known as Aslan. And in the silver chair, uh, Jill is walking and she's, she's very thirsty. And across the way, she sees a stream with rippling water. And she thinks, oh, this is great. She can satisfy her thirst. There's only one problem. Aslan stands between her and the water. Lewis writes, Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting. 
nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. That's beautiful. You want to get to the rivers of living water, you have to go to Jesus. There is no other water available. And the only place where you can go to be safe from the wrath of Jesus Christ is by going to Jesus Himself. It's interesting how this psalm ends. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The only place where you can find safety from the wrath of Jesus is by going to Jesus for refuge. There is no other refuge available. This, this is the big story. God sent Jesus to nation's rage. They crucified Him, but God raised Him from the dead, seated Him upon the throne, and has given Him the nations, and He rules and He reigns over the nations. That's the big story that we have to understand as we live the Christian life. Now, just two implications that I want to make very clear. This is nothing less than the Gospel. This is the Gospel. Again, Acts 2. When Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, he talks about the life of Christ and the miracles. And then he talks about the death of Christ. Yes, He died on the cross atoning for our sin. We know that God accepted His sacrifice for our sins because He vindicated on the third day, raising Him from the dead. But Peter didn't stop there. The Gospel message doesn't stop there. Then Jesus, 40 days later, ascended into heaven. And this is the pinnacle of Peter's Gospel. Therefore, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and King. He rules. He reigns. You need to bow the knee and you need to confess that He is Lord. People will not confess that Jesus is Lord unless we present Him. As Lord. Remember what Paul said in Romans 10.9? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. So let's be very clear in what salvation is. We talked about the fellowship feast. The Bible doesn't talk about asking Jesus into your heart for salvation. Salvation is not simply believing facts. It's not simply being sprinkled with water. Salvation is recognizing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, putting your faith in Him, confessing His Lordship, and bowing down before Him. That's salvation. And we want to get the message very clear. Some, some of you know that I absolutely love this topic of the kingship of Jesus Christ. And it really started out as an interest in eschatology. Where is the world going? But the more I study this, the, the more I love this theme because it's not just eschatology. Eschatology and the Gospel come together. 
Jesus as the King. This is the Gospel. The Gospel that Peter presented. And as we saw in previous weeks, when Jesus came, He declared the good news of the coming of the Kingdom. And you enter into the Kingdom by being born again, by repenting and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And when you see Jesus ruling and reigning over the nations, and when you see the nations bowing down before Him, and when you see in other psalms that all the kings of the earth are going to come, all the nations are going to stream to Him. They're going to serve Him. They're going to bring their gifts to Him. They're going to bless His name. When you see that and you look at where we're going in world history, let me ask you, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Optimistic or pessimistic? Tell me, that's not a rhetorical question. Optimistic. The church of Jesus Christ is so pessimistic. It bothers me. Not only because then we say, oh, there's not much that we can do. I think it's an insult to King Jesus. I really do. We are insulting Jesus who is ruling and reigning over the nations when we are pessimistic about His reign and what it's bringing about in the world. That's an insult to King Jesus and His reign. And it's a terrible demotivator for Christians. And just keep your ears open and see how often you hear Christians say, oh, things are just going to get worse and worse. There's nothing we can do. Boy, I sure hope the rapture is right around the corner. You, you laugh, but you know what? It's, it's not funny. You will hear it. That is so defeatist. Are, are God's people supposed to be walking around like, oh boy, things are so bad. Shucks. <laughs> Can't wait to be raptured out of here. We have to be optimistic. And people have different ideas of how optimistic we should be. I'm very optimistic. But even if you're not as quite as optimistic as I am, we should be at least somewhat optimistic because He is ruling. He is reigning. And His rule in heaven makes a difference on earth. What did we pray this morning? Did you believe what you prayed earlier? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done where? On earth, just as it is in heaven. That's what we're praying for, Lord. We're praying for Your kingdom to come in power and for your will to be done right here on planet earth just as it is in heaven. Is God going to answer that prayer with a yes or a no? Jesus wouldn't have told us to pray that way if God didn't then intend to answer it. And we are to pray that way so we can be optimistic. The kingdom is coming. His will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven because Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for this glorious prophetic psalm and thank You that on this side of the cross we can see how it's fulfilled in Christ. And Father, after 2,000 years of Church history, we can see how the Gospel has spread like leaven. 
And Father, we continue to pray for the kingdom to continue to spread, to continue to grow. And Father, thank You that we get to be a part of bringing in Your kingdom. Father, help us to see how this relates to the Gospel. Help us to see how this relates to daily life. I pray that our message and our lives will be transformed because of the truth that we celebrate on Ascension Sunday. In Jesus' name, Amen.